Hello, you're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast for Christadelphians and those interested in the gospel message, the truth of the Bible. <clears throat> now, this podcast by Stephen Knowles is entitled The Bible Provides the Key to a Happy Marriage. Now, you wouldn't think, normally speaking, that the Bible would give marriage advice or marriage guidance, would you? But the Bible is full of principles and precepts that are unique to a life living in the Word of God or based upon the Word of God. And this is a wonderful talk that covers the origin, the purpose and the reward of marriage relationships and how it relates to the spiritual marriage that will one day take place between Christ and his assembled believers, known in the scriptures of truth as the Bride of Christ, a collective of those individuals who have dedicated their lives to serving him during their own lifetimes, awaiting the promise of the kingdom of God and the resurrection of the dead, where they will be united with Christ in a kingdom of God, but upon earth, not in heaven, as taught by many of the popular churches round about us. A little Bible study reveals that, that truth and goes a long way to help us come to a knowledge, a clear knowledge of the gospel message and what God has in store for the future. So this podcast is about 54 minutes long, so I won't keep you any longer. So until next time. Hope you enjoy it. If you in, if you do enjoy it, please share the podcast. Tell others about it, and uh, leave us a message if if you'd like to. Thank you and God bless. The Bible provides the key to a happy marriage, and the attitude towards marriage in society has changed quite markedly over recent years. The value that's placed on marriage and the relevance of marriage has been uh, greatly decreased from what it once was, and unhappy marriages, divorce is a common occurrence. It's a very unfortunate thing, but that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. We're here to talk about a very positive message that comes out of the Bible regarding marriage. And so the statistics around modern marriage and the reasons for the issues in it, we're not going to look at at all. So is our title true? Does the Bible really provide the key to a happy marriage? Do you have to read the Bible to have a happy marriage? Well, no, you don't. There's many, many happy marriages out there for people who don't believe in God and for people who don't read the Bible. But what they're lacking, and they probably don't realise this, is purpose to their marriage. Why are they married? What's the point of it? Sure, they might be having a happy time with another person and share their life with them. But marriage needs a purpose. And so I'm going to give our title a slight tweak. The Bible provides the key to a successful marriage. And a marriage that is successful will undoubtedly be happy. And the Bible is going to show us this evening that the purpose of marriage is not just to be happy. But there's an outcome which we're looking for from it. What is a successful marriage then? A successful marriage is where two people 
both share in salvation. Both partners to the marriage share in salvation. They live forever in the kingdom of God. And that's what salvation, according to the Bible, involves. There's many details in the Bible around the kingdom of God. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the setting up of a, a new world order where things like the environmental crisis will be healed, social issues will be reformed. Things like COVID will no longer be an issue. So certainly a time that we would really like to all be involved with. And a successful marriage will help two people to be there in that environment. Now a marriage in the world might be happy, or it might not be, but a successful marriage will most definitely be happy. And the key is to make God the centre of your marriage. Focus on God. Make him the most important person in your marriage. Not just each other, but focus on God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this as we go through this evening that the Lord Jesus Christ is presented as a husband. And the most notable characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ is his attitude of sacrifice and service. So the, in, the essential ingredient for us in our marriages is to forget about ourselves, sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of our partner. Because, as we said, that's the most prominent characteristic of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sacrifice is the basis of the first marriage which took place in the Garden of Eden. It's the ultimate expression of love. To give yourself entirely for someone else is the ultimate expression of love. And as we said, it's essential to a happy marriage. So if everything you do is in the context of sacrifice in your marriage, it will undoubtedly be a happy one. Well, how can you tell if your marriage is a success? Some of the tests you can, you can put to your marriage is what's the strength of your relationship with God look like as an individual and as a couple? How strong is your relationship with God? Do you often talk about salvation? Do you know about the kingdom of God and do you talk to each other about that? Do you encourage each other in that? Do you put your partner first? Do you sacrifice for them? And are you happy? Do you feel like you have purpose in your life together? Well, in actual fact, God's purpose is based on relationships. He's a king and he has servants. He's a father and he's got children. He's also a husband and he has a wife. And he wants to have a family where all his children have the same sort of characteristics that he does. You want to see family characteristics. And as a critical part of this, he's provided his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died to save men and women. So he died for other people. Now, the Bible describes this as the act of a husband who truly loves his wife. And as I mentioned before, we're going to have a look at this a bit later in our discussion. So we'll find that this relationship between Jesus and those who have faithfully committed to him is described as a husband and wife relationship, a marriage relationship. Well, 
we're going to the Bible. Why should we go to the Bible? Why should the Bible be an authority on marriage? Well, I'll give you a number of reasons. First of all, marriage originated with God. God, of course, is the author of the Bible, we believe, and therefore that's where you'll find out about the origin of marriage. The Bible actually begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. Two different types of marriages, but the beginning of, a, of the Bible is a marriage and the end of the Bible is also a marriage. And we'll explore those things this evening. The Bible records different mar marriages, people who experience the same issues that we have in our marriages here today. Things like communication, trust, forgiveness, faithfulness, conflict resolution, raising a family, and other things that are all things that we deal with in our marriages. It uses marriage, the, the relationship between a bridegroom and a bride, as the illustration of joy. That wonderful picture of joy of two people getting married and so happy. It describes the relationship between God and his special people Israel, which is why I said God is a husband and Israel is described as his wife. And the focus for our evening is going to be the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and those people who are faithfully committed to him. And that is a relationship of a husband and a wife. So you can see the Bible is all about this relationship of husbands and wives. But in particular, if marriage, a successful marriage, is really about salvation, then we have to go to the Bible, because the Bible is where we find out all about salvation. It's there that we find out what it actually involves. So we have no choice but to go to the Bible. So we're going to look at our evening in, in three different aspects. First of all, we'll have a look at an Old Testament reference. We'll go back to Genesis and have a look at particularly Genesis chapter 2. And we'll see there the origin of marriage. We'll see how the dynamic in marriage came about and how that became the model for not only subsequent marriages between men and women, but also between the Lord Jesus Christ and his faithful followers, the believers. The second section we're going to take is from the New Testament, and we're going to have a look at the, um, the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 of Ephesians, and we'll see there the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his wife. As I said before, Christ and his faithful believers, his committed believers who are described as his wife. Now, I appreciate many of you aren't married, so you might feel that this isn't for you. But the third part of our marriage, is uh, part of our discussion, is that marriage is not just for men and women in this life. We can all be part of a marriage, part of that marriage between the Lord Jesus Christ and his faithful believers. So it's for all of us. It's not just married people who can share in salvation. Now we need to get some context around where we're looking. How do we really know, when we go back to Genesis, that we're looking at the first marriage? Well, 
we can really trust the Lord Jesus Christ, can't we, on this. He was having a discussion with the religious leaders of his day and they were challenging him about divorce, whether divorce was okay or not. And his response to them was in Mark chapter 10 and verse six, he says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, which means to hold fast or to be inseparably joined, so be joined together with his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So then they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder, or don't let man separate. If God has joined it together, man cannot separate it. So what Jesus says to these religious leaders of his day tells us about the origins of marriage. He says it started right back at creation. And in fact, he's quoted here directly from Genesis chapter two and verse 24, which says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. So Jesus says that God deliberately created a man and a woman so that they could be in a marriage relationship, so that they could be joined together. It was a deliberate choice which God made. And since God had joined these two people, Adam and Eve, at creation, their relationship was exclusive to them. It was permanent and should never be broken. And that's what the marate, the marriage relationship looks like. Two people joined by God when God is part of that marriage, then it cannot be separated. Now, clearly then we know that the relationship between Adam and Eve at creation was that of a husband and wife, a marriage, wasn't it? We can see here the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that. Now, Jesus also uses an interesting phrase here, a rather strange phrase when you think about it. He says that they came together as one flesh. Now, when we have a look at the record of, of the creation of Eve in Genesis chapter two, and then when we look at uh, our second section in Ephesians five, we'll see why we've got this phrase, one flesh, why it is so, um, so apt in its application to marriage. In a simplest meaning, it is that two people are so closely joined that it's as if they're one person. Mentally, they understand each other perfectly. They're interested in the same things. They could talk about them in a way that each other understands what the other means. Emotionally, they feel the same about things. They're sensitive to each other's needs and they care about them deeply. They're prepared to sacrifice for each other. And their greatest desire is to, to give love and support to them never to hurt or to give cause for distress. They're emotionally at one and physically, they have an intimate relationship that should only be exclusive to the marriage relationship. Now this record of Genesis chapter two shows us how this one flesh relationship originated. And that little phrase, one flesh, as 
as we said, it seems a little strange one, but it's going to come out in each section that we look at this evening, each of the records we go to. Now, flesh, just in case uh, that's not a familiar term, basically means body tissue. So they're one, one form of meat. Human meat. Okay, so um, Jesus referred back to, to the beginning when men and women created, didn't he? And the first marriage took place here when God joined these these two, these two people together. Now, the time of creation was where God was able to bring various things into being, being for the purpose of giving himself pleasure. That was the whole point of creation, is that God got pleasure. And each day after he created things, he'd look at what he made and said, that's good. So. The day he made the, the grass and the fruit trees and all those sorts of things, he said, it's good. Sun, on the day where he made the sun, moon and stars, he looked at those and said, yeah, that's good. I'm getting pleasure from that. On the day where he created, created fish and birds, he looked at that and said, that's good. And on the day where he created the animals on the earth, he also looked at that and got pleasure. He said, that's good. However, that wasn't the case with everything. Because he said in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, so we've got the record in chapter 1 of all these things made. We come across to chapter 2 and God says, it's not good that man should be alone. So he's got man created here, and he's all alone. There's many animals around, but no one quite like the man. So God says, I'm gonna make him somebody who is compatible with him. I'm gonna make him a companion. Now we've got a number of different uh, translations, uh, translations on the screen. We've got one from the King James, which says, I'll make a help meet for him. Uh, another one from the International Standard Version which says I'll make him a companion that is suitable, a suitable match for him or a, a companion corresponding to him. And then one from Young's Literal Translation which says I do make to him a helper as his counterpart. So you can see there we're looking for something that matches up to Adam, a companion that he can relate to. Now, Adam doesn't know this is what God's gonna do. God looks at him and says, you're alone. What was so bad about Adam being alone? Well, think about why God created him in the first place. We said that God was talking about creating a family, a family with characteristics like the father. Now, Adam could appreciate how wonderful God was. He could understand about God and the things he did. He could understand about God's character and be thankful for that. But when it came to Adam actually showing that character to someone else, he had no one to do it to. He couldn't show characteristics like love and mercy and forgiveness, patience, all these sorts of 
these characteristics need somebody else to interact with. And then you can develop and grow your own character. So Adam being on his own was lacking in that regard. And that's why God said it's not good that Adam's alone. Now, as we read the rest of those verses, we can see what God was going to do. He was going to uh, create a companion for, make a companion for Adam. But he doesn't do that right away. He gives Adam the opportunity to go out and look for a companion on his own, a bit like we might try and find a partner for life. So God brings all the animals which surrounded uh, Adam. He brings all the animals over a period of time to Adam and says, have a look and see what you think of these. And Adam looks at them, he sees their various different characteristics, and he gives them names based on those characteristics. But there wasn't found, verse 20 of chapter 2 tells us, there wasn't found for the man any companion corresponding to him. There was nobody who Adam could relate to mentally or emotionally or physically. There was no one there that he could become intimate with on those levels. So God said, all right, I'll do it. I'll look after it, but it's going to take sacrifice on your part. Now, we highlight sacrifice here because that's the key feature of any marriage between a man and a woman. But in particular, when we come to look at the marriage between Jesus Christ and his faithful believers, that's the thing that stands out from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his preparedness to sacrifice for others. So, verse 21 of Genesis chapter 2 tells us that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought, unto, brought her unto the man. So it's as if Adam's been put under general anaesthetic. He's in a deep sleep. Or even more so, it's, it's as if he's dead. He's made a sacrifice. He's dead. And God takes from him a bone with all the, the flesh around it, all the body tissue around it. And from that, he forms a companion for him. He forms Eve. And Adam looks at her and he says, the notable characteristic about this one is that she was taken out of me. So he calls her woman, which means out of man. And he looks at her and in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2, he says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, can you imagine how Adam felt about this? He'd, he just met all the animals and none of them could he really relate to. They might have been like, you, you might have a dog and you think that's a nice dog. But it can drive you nuts at times because it doesn't respond to your instructions. It doesn't have any moral sort of ability it just, it's a dog. So here was something instead which could actually respond to him. 
could actually relate to him. And it's part of me. He, but he doesn't love this woman just because she's part of him. He loves her because he can relate to her. She's a companion compatible with him. She can, she can share a love of the things he loves. She can share his emotions. And he can have an intimate physical relationship with her. She is his perfect match. So you can see why this phrase, one flesh, that Jesus used is so apt, isn't it? The two of them are like one person. In this instance, right at the beginning, they actually came from one person to two people. But from then on, as God describes it to us, as the Bible records it, they were one person, they were one flesh. And that's the sort of relationship that carries through godly marriages throughout all time. So, verse 24, we have that, um, that verse which the Lord Jesus Christ quoted when he was talking to the religious leaders in his day. Genesis 2, verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave, or be inseparably joined, unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So a man should leave his natural relations, his parents and, and be joined to his wife as one. Now Eve was most definitely compatible with Adam and she was the perfect companion for him but she was distinctly different. In very special ways she was different to Adam and that's why as our Lord tells us in, in uh, in our original quotation from Mark, God created male and female. He deliberately did it right from the beginning, created two different human beings that could complement each other. Now, people who spend lots of time and money and effort on analysing these things will tell you that there's certain um, characteristic differences between men and women as generalisations. Now, I'm not sure whether these apply to Adam and Eve, but certainly in our modern day context, these are some of the differences between men and women. A man is essentially task orientated. He sees something that needs to be doing and he wants to achieve that outcome. Whereas a woman's much more relationships orientated. A man has a, a, a conversation he communicates to transfer information. So he has something to say and he tells you. A woman's communication is more to interact. It's more about having a conversation and, and sharing. A man looks to solve a problem. Whereas a woman looks for, for empathy with that problem. So if a woman's concerned about something, she might talk to her husband about it. And her husband will say, oh, okay, if we do this, that'll fix the problem. And she'll say, hang on, I just want to actually talk about it. And you listen to me and understand how I feel about it. Whereas a man goes straight to the solution. A man prioritises the providing in a, a family, whereas a woman prioritises nurturing and relationships and people. A man, a man seeks respect. He wants to achieve things and feel that, he's, feel that he's valued for what he can provide 
for his family, for his wife. A wife uh, seeks love, she seeks sensitivity, she seeks understanding and care. She wants to feel that she's valued. And a man struggles to express emotions, whereas a woman deals with her emotions by talking about them. She feels the need to interact, to share those, and to get an emotional connection. These are just some of the things that people, um, as I said, who have done the research, more wise than myself, have suggested. Now, I've picked these ones out because they actually relate particularly to the situation between Adam and Eve um, and also between the Lord Jesus Christ and his committed believers. Now, an interesting, um, an interesting description which I've come across around the way men think and women think is that men think in boxes. They have topics or subjects kept in a box and their brain's full of all these boxes. They take one of the boxes, carefully open it up and go through that topic. When they finish, they put it back and then take the next subject. So one thing at a time, carefully, without, uh, without getting mixed up with other things. Whereas a woman is able to draw information and, and thoughts about all sorts of different things and make connections with them and somehow make it all make sense and be able to convey that out. Uh, something that I could never do. If a woman's brain was made of boxes, she could open all the boxes at once and still work out how it's sort of fitted together. Now, you can see how a, a husband and a wife, therefore, complement each other. In particular, a wife can add a real a special dimension to a husband. Because in some ways, a husband may be lacking that awareness and perceptiveness of people. He may not have the strong people skills that a woman has. And often a woman is far more sensitive and caring. She has that natural nurturing type approach. A lot more patient with somebody else's children and all that sort of thing. So a woman can provide that for a man. And we see how these two things come together and complement each other. So what's the point of the comparison I'm, I'm making here? It's to show that Adam was created by God and, then, and therefore he was just right. Eve was created by God and was just right. But Adam was incomplete without Eve. So a marriage relationship makes two people complete. It makes two separate people one flesh. It makes them one. Now, Adam was created first. It put certain responsibilities on Adam as a role in the marriage, but he certainly wasn't any more special to God than Eve was. In fact, it's very easy to make a list straight away here from Genesis chapter 1 that tells us how special they both were the same in, uh, in the time of creation before God. Both of them were made like the angels. They both had the ability to develop the character of God like the angels do. They were both told to have dominion over the animals, which doesn't just mean being able to, to control the animals physically, but to be able to think about more than just filling your stomach or whatever an animal might think about to show appreciation of God. They were both blessed. 
They were both told to be fruitful and multiply or, or to have a family, to have children. They were both described as very good. And they were both given the hope of salvation. We've got a couple of quotes there, Galatians uh, chapter 3, which says, there's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus, and therefore you are heirs of the hope of salvation. So that, just, that quote there just gives us a little, a little taste of what we've got coming in Ephesians. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. So both men and women are part of this wife of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what have we seen so far? Well, we've seen that in the beginning, God created a man who was alone. And the man made a sacrifice of his own, his own uh, bones and, and body tissue, his flesh, and uh, God made from that a companion for him, the woman. She was perfectly compatible with him. She was the, the perfect companion, but she was also distinctly different in many ways. But they were so mentally, emotionally, and physically at one that they were almost like one person. They acted as a joint person, and therefore the Bible calls them one flesh. And that sets the pattern for all godly marriages moving forward. So the second section we're going to have a look at now is from Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, we're going to be looking at the section from verse 25 to 33. Now, without actually reading this, I just want to give you a, a visual impact. How do we know that this is step to another, another level? We've had uh, a discussion around a natural physical relationship. And now, in Ephesians 5, all of a sudden, just highlighting there, we've got this is now, as you can visually see there on the screen, this is as to the Lord, even as Christ, submits to Christ, as Christ, as Christ. It refers to Christ. So all of a sudden, everything we're going to see in this section is how it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you will, if you have, if you have a, a Bible that you're reading from, you'll see that there's a reference to Christ and the church here. Now, we're going to actually use the word assembly, the assembly of believers, uh, instead of that, because the Bride of Christ is not an institution. It's, it's not the institution of the church. It's those who have made a faithful commitment to him and remain so a faithful commitment in baptism. And that's another subject which is associated with salvation. So we're going to focus in on verses 25 to 31. And that says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the assembly and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her and having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the assembly to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the assembly, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Here again, we get our quotation from Genesis 2, don't we? So we've seen it in three places. Genesis 2, where it originated, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ quotes it when he's talking um, about a commitment and a man and a woman make to each other when they're joined together by God. The commitment they might make is as one flesh. And here now, once again in Ephesians, we have that same expression. So the section here which we're reading through, I just want to highlight easily. So how do we know that there is a connection here between wives and the assembly of believers. Well, immediately, again, by highlighting here, we see that husbands are to love your wives. We have a natural relationship. Like Christ, love the assembly of believers. So then we've got the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are faithfully committed to him. Verse 26, that he, which is Christ, might sanctify her, having cleansed her, the assembly of believers. Uh, once again, in, in verse 28, men loving their wives, and down in verse 29, as Christ does the assembly of believers. So you can, you can see there there's a correspondence between the two, between a wife in a, in a um, natural relationship between a man and a woman, and the assembly of believers who the Lord Jesus Christ says it's his wife. Now, just a, um, a word of, not warning, but a word of awareness here. The things here that are in Ephesians chapter 5 are very much principles that are ideal. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ as a pattern which, in particular, husbands have to follow. That is a really big thing to live up to. In any aspect of life, being like the Lord Jesus Christ is challenging. In a marriage relationship, obviously there is the extra pressure there because every day you're living with somebody next to you who knows exactly whether you're being like the Lord Jesus Christ or not. So in a marriage, we need to be patient with each other. We need to be understanding. We need to be forgiving. And we need to be supportive of each other. So that's what we're looking at here is a real, a real challenging thing to live up to, but it's a wonderful thing when we say the Lord Jesus Christ is someone that is a, a, perfectly, um, a perfect model of his father and he is the person we want to be most like in the world. And when we look at that, we say, here he is, we want to be like him, and we rely on him as our husband. We can trust him in our relationship with him. So there's a connection between wives and the assembly of believers. There's also a connection between husbands 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, it jumps out at us here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ. So that the husband is to conduct himself in the relationship like Christ does. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, just as Christ does the assembly of believers. So we've got this, this connection between the husband and wives. And the record here in Ephesians 5 really puts the responsibility back on the husband to lead the, lead the relationship in a godly way. The reason for that is that Adam was created first. And Adam had the responsibility to care for Eve, his wife. So in a godly relationship, in the godly model, which is what we're talking about, the husband has the responsibility to take the lead in his marriage like the Lord Jesus Christ does, take the lead in the relationship the believers have with him. What's the outcome we're looking for? We're looking for salvation, aren't we? So if a husband can lead his family, lead his marriage like the Lord Jesus Christ, he and his wife will, in God's grace, be saved. If we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as his bride, salvation is assured. So this section here is telling us, and um, that slide is just a mismatch mishmash of colours just to show you how all in here we've got this interaction of the natural relationship between a husband and wife along with this one which we see between the Lord Jesus Christ and his faithful believers. It's all put together in this section and we're getting instruction on how we should live our natural marriages based on this special relationship. So what is it that the husband is expected to do here. As I said, the, the role of responsibility, the weight of responsibility falls back on him. What was it that Christ did that he needs to do? So husbands need to love your wives in the way that Christ loves his bride. What did Christ do? He gave his life. You couldn't do any more than that, could you? He gave his life. For his wife. For those people who put their trust in him, he gave his life to save them. Now, not many husbands are expected to go to that extent. But how does that look in daily life then? If we're going to sacrifice for our wife, what does that look like? Well, certainly it looks like putting our wife's needs before our own. We make sacrifices for her, things that we would want to do for ourselves. If it's going to benefit her by not doing that, then we don't do it. If there's something else that we could do that puts our wife first, that's what we do. What does this next one in verse 26 look like? Washing of water by the word. Now, that, that's a rather uh, complex-sounding phrase, isn't it? So, washing of water by the word. Now, the word there is talking about the word of God. And the concept of washing is to clean something, isn't it? So we're cleaning by the word of God. So what's happening is a character is being cleansed. We're getting morally changed by the word of God. So the record here in Ephesians 5 says it's up to the husband 
to make sure that the word of God is constantly in their relationship, it's constantly flowing through the relationship so that there's a moral change. We're becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're becoming more acceptable to God. We've got the family characteristics of God developing. What else should the husbands do? Well, the husbands should love their wives. A bit strange that you should tell a husband to love his wife, isn't it? Particularly if you're just getting married and someone says to you, now, lovely you're married, now go and love your wife. Why would a husband be told to love his wife? Well, remember the comparisons we made uh, a little while ago about the difference, differences between men and women? A man's not always aware of the, the need to show that sensitivity, to show that care, to show that love to his wife. So the writer here says, remember, you need to show that. You need to show that love. But also, we naturally love ourselves more than other people. We're naturally selfish, aren't we? So if you're going to be acting in your relationship like the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be totally selfless because that's what Jesus Christ is like. So the instruction here is to love your wives. How much should you love them? Well, as if they were yourself. Whatever you would do for yourself, you do for your wife. You take care of yourself, you keep yourself healthy, you do those sorts of things for your wife. You show that same intense care. Remember back to Genesis, Eve came out of Adam. Adam cared for himself, no doubt. He had that same uh, care and love for his wife, Eve because they were one flesh. What else is he told to do? Well, he's told to nourish and cherish his wife. Now, this has a real tenderness associated with it. In other, uh, other sections of the Bible, that word nourish is used, and it refers to um, a nurse, the attention and care of a nurse. So you've got this, this intense feeling and care and, and love shown from a husband to his wife taking care of her in a tender way. And he's also told to leave his natural relationships and hold fast with his wife. So there must be faithfulness in a marriage. There must be a oneness in that marriage that is not broken, that other people don't intrude on. This is a faithful marriage. The commitment between those uh, believers and the Lord Jesus Christ referred to here in this section is one of faithfulness. There's nobody else that can come into this relationship. It is totally between the Lord Jesus Christ and those who have made a commitment to him. The model is the same. In our, in our marriages now and in the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ of those who are committed to him, the model works the same. So... Here we are at the, the critical point of our discussion. What is the key? The key to a successful marriage is Ephesians 5 and verse 33. Let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
So what we have here in Ephesians 5 and verse 33 is the relationship of a husband and a wife mirroring, mirroring the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and the assembly of believers who have faithfully committed themselves to him. So in a God-centred marriage, the husband will do his absolute best to act like the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said before, that, that's a huge call, challenging to do. But he will do his absolute best to act like the Lord Jesus Christ. He will serve his wife, he will sacrifice for his wife, and he will do his best to lead her to the kingdom. The wife will respond to that. She will see that her husband is trying to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. She loves and honours the Lord Jesus Christ, so she will do that with her husband. She will show in their marriage an appreciation for that lead which the husband is giving because of her respect for the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the model for a successful marriage. This is the, um, the template, if you like. Putting that into practice is obviously a challenge. But I want to pick out of this two words. Let each of you let each of you love his wife. So, the each of you is the husband. Husbands love your wives, and see that the wife respect her husband. So, love by the husband, respect by the wife. Two different things. Now, why does it say love and respect like that? We've already, we've already made a mention of this. A husband shows his love by acts of service and sacrifice. A wife shows her love by appreciation and respect for what her husband is doing. This is what it looks like in daily life. It becomes a cycle. A husband takes the initiative God's put on him the onus to reach out in the marriage. So he sacrifices himself. He puts the effort into serving his wife. Here's the thing to think about. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's prince. He's the one who deserves the most respect, the most honour of anybody throughout time, any man, you can't get anyone greater than the Lord Jesus Christ among men. He was about to go out and sacrifice his life for others. Meanwhile, his disciples were arguing between themselves over who was the greatest. Here he is, the greatest man about to give his life, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. What does he do? He gets down and he washes their feet. How's that for an example? So if you're having a challenge as to how you should treat your wife, just think about that little story. So a man sacrifices and serves his wife. In, his, in, in the wife, she sees that. She's appreciative of that. She respects the fact that he's trying to be like Christ. She shows that appreciation and he says, ah, what I'm trying to do here it's acknowledged, it's accepted. 
Christ is respected in our marriage and it causes this flywheel to occur. Now when that doesn't happen, obviously we end up with a very unhappy marriage when each is focused on themselves rather than on, on their God-given roles. So the key to a happy marriage in practice is each doing their part, motivating the other to theirs. And day by day, in our interactions, it will work in a godly way. Now there's a very unpopular concept which is one of submission. And that's also dealt with here in Ephesians 5. We're not going to have a look at that, but what that also relates to is actually leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ in the marriage. So if in your own time uh, you want to have a look at that or if you want to contact us and discuss it, we can go through the rest of the story there. And that fits the pattern, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ and his faithful believers and the way they interact. Okay. We've reached the, the end point of our discussion together. What about people who aren't married? Well, all of us can be the wife of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us, married or unmarried, are part of those who have, can be part of those who have faithfully committed themselves to him, the ones he has chosen as his wife. What's the criteria? Well, we need to become one flesh with him. We, we need to act, even though we're not one, we need to act as if we're one. So we need to get one mentally with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to find out about him. We need to find out about God. Be interested in the things he's interested in. Know how to communicate about those things. Understand the Bible. Learn his teachings. There's plenty of information we can get about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he, he thinks, how he acted. We can follow that. We can be at one with him emotionally. The love which he shows to us as individuals, we can extend to others. We show his love the same as he showed it. We have a love for the Lord Jesus Christ's Father and our Father, God himself. Sharing emotions with that. And we have an appreciation between ourselves. How could you not love somebody who gave their life for you, who sacrificed themselves, who, who could have done no more than what he did. How could you not love someone like that? So we can be one mentally, one emotionally with him. And one day he's going to return to set up the kingdom of God, to bring salvation to those who have faithfully committed to him, to bring salvation to his wife. And that time those who are his wife will become totally one flesh with him, one flesh physically. The natural bodies which we bear will be changed. And as immortal, like he is, we will be able to help him in his object to change this world, to change this weary world and refresh it like it was back at the time of creation when Adam and Eve joined together in the first marriage. We come to the end of the Bible and we read about the time when the Lord Jesus Christ is married to his bride, to the assembly of believers. 
And so we have the bookends to the Bible. And the key is, in our marriage, if we can each play our part, particularly the man taking the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the wife responding how those who love the Lord would, then we have the key to a successful marriage, which will undoubtedly be happy.